0: I'm Leonard People across the U.S. and in many other countries as well are asking when businesses should be allowed to reopen. Donald Trump has echoed the argument of some, saying that protecting lives must not come at the cost of destroying the economy. But debates about that kind of trade-off predate the COVID-19 pandemic. Moral philosophers, economists, doctors, business leaders, and others have weighed how to value people's lives for far longer than you might even imagine. Columbia University data scientist and health economist Howard Stephen Friedman examines how we have untied the economic and ethical knot of the value of human life and and how the value we attach to lives may be unjust in his new book called Ultimate Price, The Value We Place on Life. It's published by the University of California Press, and I'm very pleased that it brings Professor Friedman to our show now. Welcome. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be on. Uh, I'm sure that when you were writing this book, you had no idea just how apropos it would be to world events when it was published.
1: I had no idea, and I think we'd all prefer if it wasn't
0: so, uh, so timely. You cover a range of examples, and we'll discuss several, but does the COVID-19 pandemic present an especially urgent need to discuss how, how we value life? Absolutely, and
1: and it's forcing the public to realize that these types of discussions and analyses uh, really are happening all the time. It seems like every few years, the public gets reignited to the fact that dollar figures are put on human life regularly, Often they're unfair, and in situations where they're off, they are unfair, the public needs to respond.
0: Uh, Donald Trump and his advisers have consistently understated the harm caused by the virus. Doesn't a great deal depend on calculations like that based on the differing values uh, of alternatives? Um, and then uh, I just uh, saw Chris Christie on uh, television the other day. He told Dana Bash, Uh, Of course, I'm quoting, of course, everybody wants to save every life they can. But the question is, toward what end ultimately? And then he added, there are going to be deaths. Other Republicans have made similar statements, leading some critics to wonder whether the GOP can still call itself pro-life.
1: Well, I think it's important to remember that regulatory agencies routinely look at the balance between safety and cost. This is literally the job function of things like the Food and Drug Administration, the Environmental Protection Agency, National Highway and Transportation Safety Administration. So each one of these agencies are tasked with trying to figure out what are the costs associated with increasing safety and what's the corresponding benefits in terms of reduced injuries and deaths. And they have a mechanism for it. Now, COVID is vastly more complicated. There are so many more unknowns. So the modeling that regulatory agencies are used to doing in terms of cost-benefit uh, suddenly is, is a bit <laughs> intractable given the la- large number of uncertainties. But the simple fact remains that this has been a standard part of regulatory agency toolkits for decades. And they actually and that- have an
0: interesting principle. Well, there's been a a lot of debate regarding essential workers and hazard pay. Are are we being asked to reconsider how we value some lives compared to others? Aren't all lives supposed to be equal, except that some turn out to be more equal than others, like the wealthy who are buying their own ventilators to keep on their yachts? And and millionaires are scheduled to receive 80 percent of the benefit from from tax changes uh, in the the COVID-19 stimulus package. Valuing lives really does depend on what's the purpose
1: in doing that calculation and, and the mechanisms involved and the perspective. Uh, if we step back uh, to the federal government for a second and look at those regulatory agencies, they actually have a principle that says that all lives are valued equally. It wasn't always the case. In fact, during the Bush Jr. administration, the Environmental Protection Agency tested the waters. They tried using two values of life, a lower one for older people and a higher value for younger people. And the public was livid. They pushed back on this. They called it a senior death discount. And the EPA backed off. Uh, Since that day, all agencies use about the same value, roughly $10 million per life. And it's called a value of a statistical life, the estimate that's used.
0: You examine how the government allocated benefits to families of 9-11 victims through the September 11th Victim Compensation Fund. Doesn't the valuation of lives after 9-11 provide a particularly vivid example uh, of the difficulties of of evaluating risk and loss? How, how did the, the government value lives there? It does, and, and it also points to inequality.
1: So in that particular case, this was taxpayer money that was allocated. They had a special master involved in distributing the money named Kenneth Feinberg.
0: And he's he a, mediation a, he's, yes. a, mediation he's a mediation attorney.
1: He's a mediation attorney. He's a mediation attorney who has developed a specialty in handling these situations like this. And we can come back to a more recent one, but he's been doing many of them over time. For so this TEPR 11 Victims Compensation Fund, he was instructed that he had to take economic impacts into consideration. So he developed a formula. And the formula looked at lost income. It looked at the number of dependents individuals had. It also put a minimum value of life. He, he said, no matter who you are, the payment should be at least $250,000. He also capped the income. He said, even if you're earning millions, he would only assume that you earned a little over $200,000. He forced the range of payments to be narrower than it would have been. And still, it re- ended up ranging from 250000 over $7 million. That is, the families of some victims got paid 30 times more than the families of other victims.
0: And what was I mean, the not rationale the issue, for...
1: Wider.
0: What was the rationale for making certain people, considering certain people more valuable than others because of their incomes? So
1: the logic behind it was similar to what you often see in civil courts. It Specifically, they were looking at the lost income as the impact it would have on the family. The huge issue in using income to derive a value of human life is there are so many biases involved. There are gender-based biases, racial-based biases, location-based biases, age biases. All of them get ramified when you use income. But once again, he was under a directive to use uh, economic impacts. That said, afterwards, just a few years later, he specifically said that he thought it was a flawed mechanism. Given the opportunity, he said he would have valued all lives equally. He said it would have been fairer, it would have been more accepted by the public, and it would have been easier to administer. He later got the chance to implement that, by the way.
0: Well, a Facebook executive makes more than an ICU nurse. Does the government calculate the value of our of lives based on how businesses value our ability to generate profit?
1: very different perspectives. So when a regulatory agency is valuing life, they they do value all lives equally. To your point, though, compensation has a tremendous range. If you're earning minimum wage, that comes out to about $15,000 a year. On the other hand, CEOs of major companies can earn hundreds of millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. So the range is enormous. Um, but the government does start with that equality principle in those calculations. For-profit companies, on the other hand, when they do cost-benefit analysis, have a very different perspective. And they're focused really on the question of what are the costs and benefits to their bottom line.
0: Now, you said that uh, they decided to depart from uh, precedent uh, after 9-11. Were victims of other terrorist attacks granted compensation? For example, uh, not necessarily Americans. When when American forces uh, attacked civilians in Iraq or Afghanistan, for example, when the United States shot down Iran air 1988, did the U.S. compensate the the families of those victims? And did they treat (laughs) their lives as equal to American lives?
1: Uh, I'm not sure of the exact compensation in that case, but I can guarantee you that the payments that are made are almost certainly much larger when a U.S. life is involved. Military deaths in the United States generally involve an equality principle, So there's generally an equal payment for loss of life if uh, someone in the U.S. military dies uh, as part of their duty. So there is an equality principle that even is involved in the military. But if you start thinking about how lives are valued internationally, we can think about more the impact in the corporate setting. So, for example, 1984, they had the terrible accident in Bhopal, India. About 6,000 people died. Well, the settlement for that came in around 1989, and it was about $60,000 per victim. That's a small fraction of the payments that happened in the United States. If we take a more recent example, uh, Toyota uh, acceleration issue. So the Toyota car um, company had a problem with their accelerating systems. They knew about it, did not correct it. The total number of deaths was less than 100. Yet the Payments In terms of regulatory fines and settlements for families of victims was on the scale of tens of millions of dollars per victim, completely different scale. But aren't many of those
0: aren't many of those uh, numbers determined through court cases? Often they are.
1: Often they are. And in fact, it's these lawsuits that uh, really play a major role in companies trying to figure out what are the inputs when they do a cost benefit analysis. So imagine you're a car company. You're trying to determine should you invest more in safety. You would look at the costs associated with the increased safety mechanisms above and beyond what's the requirement by the regulatory agencies, and you look at the benefits. And the benefits could be less losses in lawsuits, less regulatory fines if you happen to be slipping past regulatory limits, and, of course, the impact on brand. Now, if you know that you're going to have to pay $10 million or $20 million per preventable death, you'll invest a lot more in safety than if you're only paying $60,000 per preventable death. So it impacts exactly how corporations can make decisions.
0: One of the key ideas you examined is the value of a statistical life. What does that mean?
1: So this is a term that was derived by economists, and it looks specifically at our tendency to have a trade-off between dollars and risk. It's estimated different ways. Uh, One of the ways it is estimated is looking at the concept of hazard pay. How much more do you have to pay someone for them to take on a riskier job? That's a wage-based mechanism. They also try to estimate using surveys as well as looking at how people spend money incrementally for more safety devices. Either way, they come up with this estimate for how much more you're willing to spend or accept in order to impact the risk of death. When the numbers are calculated, it's um, it's quite noisy, to be very honest. There's a huge range, and a lot of factors uh, play a role in it. But it does come out with a very large number. Uh, if you go back, today it's about $10 million. You can go back a decade or so in time, and it was uh, estimated at around uh, $6 million. But the number is substantially large. And by being large, it does encourage companies to invest in safety. Because lives that are more valued are more protected. Lives that are less valued are less protected.
0: But, but the wage-based method tells us how employers value employees. What does it tell us about how to value lives?
1: Well, it's interesting because it doesn't always have to be
0: limited to what
1: the employer uh, values. Uh, so, once again, there are limitations in the, in the data itself. But if we do take the assumption that people are able to negotiate for wages, then it does reflect a little bit about what the market can command, that is the trade-off of risk and dollars. So if I have a choice between a safer job or a riskier job, one that I have a more likely chance of dying, well, I'm expected to get paid more for that. And that hopefully is uh, you're informed of the risks, you're making a conscious decision, and you have the ability to negotiate with your employer. Given all those conditions, then you can get an estimate of how much people are willing to accept in terms of incremental risk for pay. That ratio is what goes into defining the value of a statistical life.
0: My guest on Leonard Lopez at Large today, by the way, the show was on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, this is Howard Stephen Friedman. His book, Ultimate Price The Value We Place on Life, published by the University of of California Press, um, what is the rationale behind establishing a common measure like the, the value of statistical life?
1: Uh, the logic is by using a value that is accessible to everyone and having consistency with it. You you won't have risks being piled into one group or another. If you if you have an age based uh, mechanism then just like the EPA tried doing in uh, the Bush Jr. administration, you'll have some populations who are as lives are less valued and more exposed to risk. If you have an income-based mechanism, then people who earn less will have their lives less valued and less protected. So the value in having a mechanism which applies evenly to everyone is important. The fact that the number that's been derived is quite large – really does help people. It helps protect their lives because it forces companies to invest more in safety.
0: But women and minorities have historically been paid less than white men for the same work. Has a greater price tag been attached to the lives of white men?
1: Well, the implication is in civil courts, where judgments may be based on income, at least lost income, that often the settlement's would be higher for people who earned more. So back to your point about gender pay gaps, race pay gaps, uh, even location pay gaps, they will end up impacting what the life was valued at in a civil court. And as I mentioned, that civil court judgment ends up driving how companies think about their cost-benefit analysis and how they invest in safety. So the point about the inequalities in income really have large ramifications that go well beyond the income they play a role throughout society
0: and we're seeing that right now where the uh, the the people who are most vulnerable often are being rather low paid
1: it, but, absolutely. but
0: but essential for keeping things going
1: and i think that uh you're seeing people understanding and appreciating that the word essential goes beyond maybe their classic definition That's why some places are considering hazard pay, trying to compensate people for the increased risk they're taking on, whether it's people who are serving us and helping us in pharmacies, in supermarkets, or if it's particularly people who are out and and helping in public transportation or other essential services.
0: You write that the revealed preference method can be thought of as the opposite of the wage-based method. How so? Doesn't the uh, the revealed preference method rely upon our ability to make informed decisions?
1: Well, they they both rely on your ability to make an informed decision. Um, but wage-based methods look at how much more people require to get paid to work a riskier job. So it's how much money am I going to receive to take on risk? Revealed preference looks at the opposite direction. Um, so it's how much money am I willing to to reduce my risk. And when I talk about that, we're talking about paying for extra safety mechanisms. For example, in cars, there was a time when it wasn't a requirement to have airbags, but they were optional. You could pay for it. Uh, We look at other safety mechanisms that you could choose to pay for. So it's really about the willingness to accept how much money will I need to receive versus my willingness to pay.
0: How closely related is the valuing of human life connected to cost-benefit analysis?
1: They're intimately related. So cost-benefit analysis, as we normally think about it, starts with, let's say it's in the healthcare space. You can look at the cost of a drug or intervention, and then you can look at the benefits in terms of, on average, what is the expected number of additional life years. That someone may live if they receive the drug. Well, you then have the question of what is the monetization of that life? So as soon as I want to put a convert lives to dollar figures, I have to take that into account. The reality is that in many systems, different healthcare systems, they do have to consider what is the return on investment in terms of the dollar spent per life. Or life year saved, or quality adjusted life year saved, or, or another metric. The choice of metric makes a big difference in terms of
0: which things you support, which lives you choose to save. When he was head of the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, didn't Cass Sunstein advocate for a single value for a statistical life across all agencies? But under both Republican and Democratic administrations, hasn't cost benefit analysis taken on a far greater role in, in policy making?
1: Well, he certainly advocated for using the same value across all agencies, and I, I agree with him. I, I don't see any reason why different agencies should use different numbers. But the reality is their variance isn't that big. Uh, they're all roughly using about ten million dollars. So it's it's more of a, a puzzling fact that there is any variance at all. That said, cost benefit analysis has become a standard part of the regulatory toolbox. Uh, they all major agencies. Have to respect and uh, examine cost-benefit analysis as part of their exploration of
0: new regulations that they're considering. Has a question about how life is valued or how governments specifies such valuation ever come before the Supreme Court?
1: Well, there, there have been there have been cases on that uh, over the years, but I think the more critical uh, question is really. What is the implication for us? Uh, You know, the Supreme Court has looked at different decisions. And, in fact, uh, there have been some decisions that unfortunately went straight across party lines regarding whether cost-benefit analysis could or should be used. And, in fact, uh, there was a specific example where the Supreme Court concluded that the Environmental Protection Agency must take costs into account when issuing regulations. So they, they have made decisions on that. But ultimately, I think the the bigger point is that this is embedded in how our government works. And uh, uh, the awareness of that makes people realize that this particular exploration of COVID response is not so unusual from how governments have been working for decades.
0: When she was addressing the matter of hundreds of thousands of deaths among Iraqi children under Clinton-era sanctions, Madeleine Albright said, I'm quoting, we think the price is worth it those lives were in effect invisible to americans but has that kind of thinking tended to become more pervasive or or insidious here in the united states well
1: you're bringing up um i think a much more subtle point which is how we perceive american lives versus the lives of people from other countries and it it's it's an interesting point right so um Madeleine Albright didn't ask the Iraqis how they felt about the hundreds of thousands of people who died. It was from her perspective, an American perspective. When we talk about like the tragic situation we had uh, with Vietnam, and you know over 50,000 Americans died, but we don't get into the conversations about the one or perhaps two million Vietnamese that died. It's simply not part of our dialogue. When we talk about World War II— we recognize the tremendous loss of life by US soldiers. But at the same time, we rarely get into the conversation about the tremendous loss of life substantially more by people from other countries.
0: On the other hand, the United States has some of the worst health outcomes among the industrial democracies. Can that be traced to how government and health insurers value our lives?
1: Kind of interesting point. You know they, so when we describe first maybe stepping back the health uh, care system in the United States, it's different from other wealthy countries. Uh, many other wealthy countries have national health care systems. Maybe, uh, like the British system, they're employees of the government, or in other cases, maybe the government is the insurer and pays for services. Regardless of how it's implemented, the U.S. does have a large mix. Even today, we have a substantial population who lacks health insurance. Beyond that, many of us have it through our employers. Well, as soon as you lose your job, you either uh, have to get on COBRA or you're going to be uninsured. So we have uh, substantial challenges in our health insurance system that many other countries don't have. This gap is being exacerbated in situations like COVID, where suddenly your reliance on your employer for insurance becomes a major issue. That said, I think uh, the truth is that the outcomes, pre-COVID even, for things such as life expectancy, maternal mortality, under-five mortality, for the United States, on average are substantially worse than the vast majority of wealthy countries in the world. And, And this is a situation which wasn't always true. There was a time when the U.S. had some of the best
0: health outcomes in the world. Decades. And now, and now uh, a case uh, to get rid of the Affordable Care Act is, is coming before the Supreme Court. There's a good chance the court will decide against it.
1: Um, well, it, it it seems like this is a routine uh, challenge that the Affordable Care Act gets, um, different challenges, but it, it's not the first case that's been brought. Uh, I think that we'll have to see how it proceeds. Uh, I think, you know, from my own perspective, I, I'm one of the unusual people who gave up employer-based health insurance to actually live the life and see what it was like on uh, the insurance I could get through through the Affordable Care Act. So I've I've experienced what that insurance is like, the the challenges with it. So I know that it's critical for many people, people who don't have the luxury of choosing to go onto that, to test it. I ended up reverting back, by the way, and taking my own... uh, employer insurance back after about a year or two just because of the challenges I had in getting good coverage. So that said, uh, I know it's being challenged. Um, my, I'm not a legal expert, but I could certainly say I, I understand that um, it'll continue probably to be challenged. But those who are reliant on it do unappreciate the fact that having some coverage is certainly better than having no coverage.
0: You discussed the case of Terry Chavo, who was kept on life support after suffering terrible brain damage in 1990. How did all the issues of valuing life play out there? Uh, There were the the, the, word quality of life considered the value of her life uh, to different family members, the cost of her care. Uh, Can, can those differing questions of value be reconciled? Well, I guess the first thing we probably want to do is tease apart the word value. so
1: Value can be a dollar fee, an economic measurement. It can also be value in terms of how much I consider something to be worth. In, in Terry Schiavo's case, uh, she was in a permanent vegetative state for about 15 years. And, uh, you know, obviously different family members disagreed as to what should be done in terms of her situation. I have to think about it also, not just the individual, but also the question of the money that was spent in maintaining her life. Could that money that had been spent been used to save other people's lives? So there there are these choices that are made. Whenever you have a system with limited resources, you have to face the fact that choices are going to be made. And then you, what you do is you hope that you're making choices that are fair, that protect human rights and then hopefully benefit the most people.
0: From the history of American business, you note the story of the Ford Pinto. Uh, in in, in the, the case of the Pinto, the benefit went to Ford executives and shareholders while the cost was borne by, by consumers. So the Ford Pinto case has unfortunately become a textbook
1: example in business ethics classes Uh, Maybe the quick backstory for your listeners is, so Ford was looking to introduce the Pinto car, and as they were looking to introduce it, there was also some regulations that were being considered raising the safety standards of cars. Ford was aware that their particular car, uh, if it uh, got hit uh, sharply in the bumper, it could end up having uh, a fire get started. So there was risk associated with the car itself. They ended up developing a a calculation that looked at the costs of implementing this repair versus the value in terms of the human lives saved. It became known as the Ford Pinto memo. Uh, The memo itself was submitted to the regulators, and it actually used what was the value of life that the regulators had suggested. Well, Mother Jones had written an article which really focused people's attention on the calculation, the limits of the calculation, uh, questioning how objective Ford had been in doing the analysis, and the public was somewhat shocked. I think at the time, this was around 1977, the Mother Jones article came out, the public didn't realize that companies routinely do these calculations, balancing safety and potential death. As it turned out in that particular case, um, Ford eventually lost some very substantial lawsuits, far, far higher than they had ever expected in their cost-benefit analysis. Uh, And unfortunately, they also became a textbook example for decades later in business ethics cases as we're in 2020, and we're still talking about that case.
0: You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. Stay with us for more. back to my conversation with Howard Stephen Friedman, author of Ultimate Price, The Value We Place on Life in Just a Moment. But, um, Professor Friedman, uh, excuse me, <laughs> because I have to take care of a little bit of other business. Uh, first of all, I'd like to say a quick thank you to listener Margaret Wilcox of Gramercy Park for her generous contribution yesterday. If you are able to support the programming we bring you every day on Let It Open at Large, we hope that you'll also step up and make a call right now during this break to 516-620-3602 as you as you've probably noticed WBAI is in its spring fund drive now and uh, and I'm pleased that uh, I'm being joined now via phone everything is by phone these days by my executive producer Jesse lent to talk about a unique offer that we are making during this drive hi Jesse Oh, Jesse, Jesse isn't there, but Jesse will be here in just a moment. Um, We are, uh, what we were going to talk about is a, hi, Jesse.
2: Hi, just, just by the skin of our teeth here. How are you? Great. Great to be on with you, Leonard.
0: Okay. You were going to talk about a a unique offer that we're, we're making during this drive.
2: Absolutely. So hello, everyone. Uh, As you've been hearing, this is, of course, WBAI's Spring Fund Drive, and we're asking people to become BAI buddies. Now, BAI buddies, forgive me for anyone who's heard this before, these are sustaining members of WBAI who step up with a monthly contribution of any amount, $5, $10, $20, $100, anything you can do every month. uh, It allows you to spread out your contribution and it allows us to plan for the future and also have a sense of where which shows have the biggest uh base of support so as a special treat this fun drive i believe for the first time ever right leonard Uh, yes we are offering something called my dinner with leonard or dinner with leonard (laughs) uh this is a teleconference call a zoom call With Leonard Lopez and nine other fans, uh, just the 11 of you, just the 10 of you and Leonard, we already have five people who have taken this offer. We've offered it the last couple days. So anyone who wants to do this, I would recommend stepping up right now. These five spots might go today. So the, the way to do that, again, this is to become a BAI buddy for $10 or more a month. Uh, a sustaining member of WBAI, go to give to WBAI.org. That's give then the number to WBAI.org. Or you can call 516-620-3602. And one critical point, uh, please be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Locate at Large. That's the only way you can become uh, eligible. uh, There's a thing called dinner,
0: isn't there? Uh, on yeah, our website? On the website, right, yeah. at
2: Dinner with Leonard. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, we talked about this on the phone. I keep wanting to add the my to it as an homage to the great Wallace Shawn movie, My Dinner with Andre. But for fans uh, of the show, I was a listener of Leonard Lopez at Large for 10 years before uh, I became Leonard's producer. And Uh, This just would have been a really cool opportunity, Um, you know, and this isn't just for big donors either, you know, $10 a month is not a lot of money. And we just wanted to give uh, our fans, your fans, Leonard, a chance to talk to you either about the show or just about anything they've always wanted to ask you. So are you looking forward to uh, to this dinner?
0: I am. Uh, I always love talking to listeners Uh, and I have lots of stories Um, that uh, cover the forty-three years that I've been on radio, but I, I think also some of the listeners might want to compare notes with their fellow station members at, at this dinner. Uh, I, I think it's going to be you, a lot of fun. What's the
2: question that you get asked
0: the most by listeners
2: when they see you on the street or meet you in person?
0: For any um, well, well, actually, it depends on what their interests are. It might be what was Barack Obama like when you talked to him, or uh, some of the other famous people, we've had so many uh, important people uh, over the years. Uh, some, some of them, uh, I have to remind myself that they were actually guests at one point. But uh, right. Neil oh. Young,
2: Francis Ford Coppola. Uh, well, uh, you know, <laughs> we Randy Newman. <laughs> uh,
0: many, uh, any number of musicians perform live on our show, and we've had a few of that. Uh, th- that, that happened even recently. We'll... Delphio Marsalis uh, brought in uh, a whole band and performed live in our studio. That it's was been... a thrill,
2: and that's that's a podcast that I highly recommend people checking out. It's a, a basically nearly an hour of uh, of live music with a with a ten piece band in the studio, uh, and and that was a thrill for me m- meeting Delphio. So you can ask Leonard about any of these things, um, you know, and also. Uh, Allow us to keep bringing you these shows. You know, uh, we might not have the biggest audience in the world, Leonard Lopate at large, um, or WBAI, but the people that listen to this show and the people that listen to this station are unbelievably engaged and committed to the to, to the programming that we bring you every day. I can tell that tell you that by having been with, with WBAI a few years now, it really is something that people take great pride in. It is a civic institution here in New York. It is your radio station. <clears throat> Excuse me. And though not everyone may know about it, like I said, we're still among people who are looking to plug in to something a little outside the mainstream. Uh know I uh, this is this is your source Leonard Lopez because we're Art not your source WBAI is your source and and you have to support
0: that we're not doing the same stories that everybody else is doing and we and the listeners tell me they really appreciate that uh, again the number is five one six six two zero three six zero two, or go to our website give to WBAI.org that's give the number two WBAI.org and And we all thank you, all of you who uh, are members or are going to become members. And, Jesse, I want to get back to my guest, okay? Please do.
2: I'm enjoying listening to it. And thank you, everyone, again. And, and yes, just one last time, please be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. We're doing okay. We're starting to get some contributions, but we're not where we need to be at this point in the drive. So we're asking everybody uh, to please step up. This is our last live show this week we're, we're preempted tomorrow. so so right now, please go to that phone five one six six two zero three six zero two or give to wbaiorg uh, uh, and, WBAI. and we should
0: point out that the pandemic has has cut back, has forced us to cut back on fundraising because a lot of people people suddenly find themselves out of work and uh, have stopped sending in money. So we need to fill that gap as well. Or please, hold
2: their, their funding that they, that they had put in. Yeah, and we completely understand. We're all in the same mm-hmm. chaos. So, yes, anyone who's able to, and we understand if you're not, but if you are, it really goes double everything that we've been saying so far. Let me let you get back to this fascinating conversation with Howard Stephen Friedman, and um, thank you all for your support. And, Leonard, I'll talk to you soon.
0: Okay, and uh, a reminder, this is WBAI New York 99.5 FM. My guest is Howard Stephen Friedman, his book, Ultimate Price, The Value We Place on Life from University of California Press. uh, Professor Friedman, when did people start to ask about uh, how we should value a life? Doesn't the book of Exodus, which was set down some 2,500 years ago, include a passage that attaches a price to a life? Uh, It's interesting because uh, you're
1: you're right. Uh, Even in biblical times, it talks about different ways that life is valued, whether it's talking about the transfer of a birthright or, in particular, uh, there's a specific quote where it says, When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. And it's a powerful phrase because what it's doing is even there, they are distinguishing first this question of intent. So if you kill your slave and they died immediately, well, then that is a murder. And as a result, you should be murdered. Once well, again, yeah, this is <laughs> biblical uh, law here. So uh, eye for an eye here. But if the slave survived a day, then they assume that this was more accidental, perhaps. Maybe that's the interpretation. And then in that case, because it was actually ownership then you you don't actually have to pay a penalty. It was just property. So really putting a dollar figure on human life, even back in, in the biblical
0: day. But aren't there some notorious cases of companies downplaying risk or the cost in lives uh, because of their business decisions? Uh, many historical examples come to mind. Cigarette smoking, lead in paint, gasoline emission, uh, uh, emissions emissions. Uh, uh, contaminated drinking water food safety seat belts are there any cases where business valued life over profit without government intervention
1: um, you know there there are I think a lot more cases now and I think this is part of corporate social responsibility but in the book I, I specifically talk about a case involving Merck and and Merck's case was quite interesting basically uh, They had identified uh, a drug called uh, Mectazan. I'm probably not pronouncing it that well. Um, That was very effective at controlling river blindness. This was a major issue in many countries in Africa. They also identified that many of the countries were not going to be able to afford to purchase the drug. As a company, they made a decision. They decided to make the drug available for free. They also helped enable the distribution of it. The net result was they had obviously tremendous impacts in terms of addressing river blindness, but also they had positive impacts, positive impacts for their own company in terms of people feeling better about their employer and and, and boosting employee morale, but also the public sentiment. And this is something that I think companies fail to account for sufficiently in cost-benefit analysis. They look at costs as in the dollars that it costs. They look at benefits related to whether they're going to have reduced lawsuits or regulatory fines but they forget the impact of brand this example about river blindness is again from decades ago but here we are it's 2020 and we're still talking about this example so when you do things right as a company people remember when you do things wrong people also remember
0: and and corporate executives make uh, some of those decisions as we said with the pinto but public officials decided to switch Flint, Michigan's water supply from Detroit system to the Flint River to save money. Are public officials just as susceptible to bad price setting as business leaders?
1: Well, public officials definitely have other constraints, and um, they have different influences. You know, the, the example of Flint, a uh, horrendous situation where so many people were drinking water that was contaminated. Uh, I think. The details behind it show that human life is valued differently. And I think, you know, to be very transparent about it, if that area of Flint had been one of the wealthiest parts of the United States, I cannot imagine that they would have been receiving contaminated water for so long. I think that this fact that it was not one of the wealthier areas of the United States played into it. But I, I want to step back uh, a second, uh, Leonard, because when we were talking about corporate Perspective. You mentioned the fact that business leaders, they get to influence the decisions made, you know, in Merck making that positive decision, uh, Ford making a decision to delay safety. Something that is very important is that the business leaders who are at those companies, often their perspective is shorter term. They're not looking 10, 20 years down the future often. They're looking short term at short term profits. And the reality is their own bonuses are usually within one-year periods if they were looking at something that could impact 10 20 years down the future but knowing it had no impact on them personally that's when you end up with a problem if their if their salaries are contingent on something that that impacts 5 10 20 years down the road it forces a longer term perspective
0: a video recently went viral of a crowded american airlines flight from new york to north carolina with pretty much every seat filled do you think that American Airlines made a calculation about the value of lives there? And, and that's something that could go on for a long time as long as Corona, the coronavirus is untreatable.
1: So I I think that different states right now are exploring different rules and regulations regarding social distancing, opening or, or closing of different aspects of society. Uh, I think that companies are trying to figure out what they can do to stay in business while not risking human lives and and also not risking themselves in in litigation problems. So I think companies are trying to figure this out. I think some are taking on much more conservative approaches. Some are taking more aggressive approaches. Uh, Ultimately, uh, I think there are lessons to be learned from other countries. And this is where you you, you were kind enough to mention Measure of a Nation, uh, one of my previous books, which I emphasize, which is there are many different countries, we have had different experiences, many of them have addressed the coronavirus very effectively. We should be looking at those countries, trying to learn from them. What did they do well? How did they control it? How did they open their aspects of the economy in a way that didn't create excessive risk, that didn't cause a rebound? So I think we should take advantage of the fact that we can learn from other countries, especially those who are already months ahead of us in terms of addressing the
0: coronavirus. But we've been talking about the culpability of, of corporations and government, but what about the people who are now uh, protesting and uh, and saying that uh, the, this whole thing, COVID-19, is a hoax and uh, give me liberty or give me death, carrying those kinds of signs? Um, what about personal culpability here? Uh, is that a factor in making these decisions?
1: There is a sense of personal responsibility there that comes up in this situation. I think it's also, you know, back to this point about looking at other places, this seems to be mostly a U.S. phenomenon. It's certainly of people showing up with, um, uh, you know, assault weapons or, uh, you know, uh, machine guns to protest their rights to not wear masks. It seems like very much an American phenomenon. I'm not seeing pictures in Europe like that. Uh, But being very specific on this question of people protesting their rights, it it is a challenge. Um, The sense of cohesion that we feel in the United States is perhaps not as strong as many other countries. The, The sense of we're all in this together and I'm responsible for not opening up risk to someone else, it may not be as strong as in other countries. So I do think we have to recognize that the U.S. does have often a very different perspective than many other countries in terms of not just in the sense of COVID, but it links back to the point you had raised earlier about health insurance. We're the only wealthy country in the world that has millions and millions of people who are uninsured. It's back to this sense of togetherness. We're all in this together shared responsibility. I think the United States is different from many other countries in that aspect.
0: Mitch McConnell and conservatives in Congress and in the White House are arguing that companies should be insulated from liability for decisions about getting back to business. If businesses were doing their due diligence in valuing lives, would that even be necessary? If if McConnell gets the liability waiver he wants, would American Airlines or, or Tyson Foods or others be free to coerce workers into working under unsafe conditions? Uh, well, Not a lawyer,
1: (laughs) but it does feel like it opens up the opportunity for companies to take on substantially more risk knowing that they don't have to pay later in terms of lawsuits. It's not too different from the conversation we were having earlier about September 11th, uh, Victims' Compensation Fund, because the compensation fund was specifically linked to the idea that families of the victims who accepted the settlements that were offered – could not sue the airlines, right? So you gave up your right to sue. Now, in that case, the vast, vast majority accepted. It was somewhere around 90% of families accepted a payment and waived their right to sue. So
0: it does seem similar in that sense, this linking
1: between the two.
0: Is there still another issue of how we value people collectively, how we value ethnic groups, diversity, cultural traditions?
1: Well, we... We certainly have situations in which uh, we're looking – and I think back to income where there's so many disparities in terms of race-based income disparities. Even if you start looking at uh, people who have similar levels of education, there's about a 25 percent gap in salary between blacks and and whites in the United States, whether they have a high school degree, college degree, or a graduate degree. Now, that consistency – uh, really speaks to
0: some concerns about uh, race-based pay gaps. And is there anything we can do to correct that?
1: Well, uh, you know, I think there there's mechanisms that can involve, uh, you know, blinded interviewing, blinded resume screens. Uh, and in fact, there have been some very powerful studies that have shown that when you do a blinded screen for who gets that first interview, rather than having it informed by the individual's name, for example, or other triggers that might help identify the person's race or, uh, or, or gender, that the chances of women and minorities getting interviews goes up substantially. So I think that there are ways to try and remove biases. I think having active mechanisms in place to, to review wage gaps is critical and i think you have to go uh, ahead please i was going to say and i think you have to continue to be persistent about challenging these these disparities because the reality is if you don't challenge them they will persist
0: advocacy groups criticize what's called environmental racism placing a power plant near a poor community for example are decisions like that guided by how public officials value lives. Uh, what does uh, federal or state law say about how companies uh, might place a value on people's lives?
1: Well, this, this particular issue that you started raising is about this ability to push back on plans to have, let's say, a, a chemical factory or a waste facility in your area, it does speak to the political power of one group versus another right so this not in my backyard concern is is one that many face right N- nobody wants to be living right next to a toxic dump but communities who are more politically empowered wealthier more influential are able to ensure that that doesn't go in their backyard and it's those who don't have that influence that end up suffering so We've certainly seen this, and, uh, you know, for people in New York, they probably uh, know there's many cases that happened where back in the days of eminent domain running wild uh, that neighborhoods were getting knocked over for large highways, uh, you know, large constructions. And it was only when uh, there was a plan to build a highway through the West Village that the, uh, the reign of eminent domain came to an end here in New York.
0: That was uh, when Robert Moses decided to destroy at least a major portion of downtown Manhattan. Well, you're exactly right. He'd he'd already done it with parts of Brooklyn with the the BQE, which now uh, has to be totally fixed. You're absolutely right. I was referring
1: specifically to Robert Moses, but the beginning of the end for Robert Moses was going up against Jane Jacobs, who was also able to rally many people. Wealthy, politically connected. And uh, that was, you know, like I said, in this particular case of all that lies being valued equally uh, certainly wasn't the case of all lies being valued equally as Jane Jacobs was able to really uh, rally political support uh, amongst those who were wealthy enough and substantially politically connected enough so that the um, (laughs) so that there isn't a highway running through the middle of Manhattan as uh, Robert Moses had envisioned.
0: Unfortunately, we've run out of time, but my great thanks to you. It's been a fascinating conversation. Howard Stephen Friedman, Ultimate Price, The Value We Place on Life, is his latest book. It's published by the University of California Press. And uh, that brings us to the end of today's shows. Special thanks to Hugh Sansom, who produced today's segment, to our live engineer, Reggie Johnson, and our executive producer, Jesse Lent, for their invaluable contributions throughout the week. If you're new to our show and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're available as an iTunes podcast. And don't forget to check out Leonard Lopate at Large on Facebook and Twitter and our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com, where you can find links to all of our past shows we're being preempted on monday uh but because there's gonna be special wba fun drive programming remember that we w- hope that you're going to show your support now during this drive but we will be back on tuesday with former minnesota attorney general barbara freeze talking about her new book industrials excuse me we're preempted tomorrow and monday Uh, On on Tuesday, Industrial Strength Denial, eight stories of corporations defending the indefensible from the slave trade to, to climate change. Hope you'll tune in to hear that.